Welcome back to the Mysteria podcast. I'm Marcus De Silva, and joining me today is Mr. Rob Carvalho. It's nice to see you, Rob. Hey, nice to see you, Marcus. So I, I think for today, we're, we're going to kind of, I, I think it'll be a little more of a loose format than usual. We'll just kind of chit chat a bit. I got a few rough topics to discuss and we'll just kind of, just kind of see what happens, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Yeah. Well, I like to talk. So, uh, there's, uh, you know, it's more a matter of, uh, of uh, trying to shut me up, I think. So uh, there we go. Well, and for a lawyer, that's a good, that's a good quality to have. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, uh, I've never been shy of public speaking, you know, whatever somebody wants me to do a speech at a wedding or something, you know, it's all based on topic, right? If they want me to talk about about them and uh, you know somebody I know that's great talk about myself or something I know yeah I'd be uh, I'd be um, I'd be scared to talk in public about something I don't know but otherwise you know I'm I'm an expert on me so uh, <laughs> it's easy yeah gotta love extroverts right <laughs> yeah, <sure>. so <laughs> on that note I mean let's just kind of I guess we can start from there uh, so what is it that you do for a living um, I'm a, I'm a partner with, uh, Thorsonson's, a, uh, it's a tax law firm and, um, I do tax representation work. So, you know, somebody's getting audited by the CRA and, um, they uh, want somebody to stick handle the audit and, uh, they come hire us and, um, I work through that. If the uh, matter has to go to court, um, then I, I do that, uh, through the tax court, federal court of appeal. And, uh, so I handle that, um. The other lawyers here at the firm, they do the tax planning side of things, you know, those intricate tax plans and family trusts and so on. But I do the representation work. Uh, about half of us do that kind of work. And there's lots of work around and it's growing, um, you know, and um, I think it's going to keep growing because uh, there's uh, the government's got to make a lot of money to, <laughs> to pay. <laughs> Well, in, so in university, uh, one of the ones, I think it was the first semester of, of final year and we, and we, yeah, definitely was. And we, you know, picking your, your courses, because luckily in third year, you have quite a, quite a few options to pick from. So it's quite nice. And we were sort of all looking at the, you know, the available options and tax law was, was one of the courses to choose from. And so we all had the exact same reaction, which was, oh, tax law is going to be so dry. But, you know, you took the course and I think, it, well, one of my favorite courses, tax law is awesome. It's so interesting. <laughs> and we had a great lecturer, which was uh, added bonus. But yeah, I think the, I think tax gets a, a bad rep just because it's like, oh, you know, taxes, right? Like, it sounds pretty boring, but yeah, when you get into it, you know, from a practical perspective, it's really interesting because it affects everybody every day in some form or another, whether it's personal or corporate or whatever. Uh, inheritance, that's a big one, you know, so income, right? But uh, yeah, then when you get into theory as well, like when you go a little more on the academic side, it's it's great. It's really dynamic and because it has to be, you know, same with criminal law, like you have to keep things up to date, you got to keep things moving. And, but yeah, so it'll be, be kind of interesting. And, and so for you, how did you end up, because you've been practicing for a while, and how did you get into tax law? Yeah, I, I, I've been, uh, I've been practicing for 30 years now, but um, I didn't take a tax course in, in law school. You know, I didn't even want to be a lawyer, right? <laughs> I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a medical doctor, you know, went to sciences at UBC, got my cell biology degree, a science degree in cell biology, applied to medical school, didn't get in, took another full course load, applied again, didn't get in, took another full course load, applied again, didn't get in. And that's it throughout UBC, you know, three strikes, uh, that's it, you can't. So I'm taking the year off. Um, I'm working at the toy department at the Hudson's Bay Company out in Richmond. <laughs> and I'm flipping through the UBC calendar, you know, graduate school, this, that, and the other. And, oh, law school. It's uh, just marks. It was your undergrad marks plus the LSAT. I wrote the LSAT 
and I, I did phenomenally well on the LSAT. And um, I applied and it was a formula at that time and they just took the, you know, uh, the top 250 students out of this formula. And so I got into law school. And at, at that time though, because um, it was 1980, uh, 1986 when I started law school and it was, um, you know, the charter had just come, uh, we just repatriated the constitution in 82 and 85, section 15, it came into force. And so everything was about constitutional law. You know, everything that was what was exciting. And um, there's some charter of rights and freedoms. We always had the Bill of Rights, but that couldn't strike down legislation. You know, this could strike down legislation, not only go after um, government action, but um, actually strike down legislation. So that was the big thing. So, you know, I was studying that. That was interesting. Uh, was interesting to me, but I didn't really think about law till I got into law school. And, you know, I didn't. Uh, I didn't have a, um, you know, um, uh, kind of law that I wanted that I wanted to do, you know, uh, other than the constitutional was very interesting because it was new and it was, you know, very topical in Canada, of course, right? Um, but um, so I articled with a firm. I did well at the, in law school. I articled with Ferris Vaughn, Wills and Murphy. And my mentor happened to be Chuck Pearson, a tax practitioner. So I ended up doing tax work, you know, professional corporations, that kind of thing. So I sort of fell into law school and I sort of fell into tax. And, you know, after articling, I went and worked for the Department of Justice. And that's where you have, that's where you're, you go learn tax law. You know, all the uh, practitioners at that point, the senior guys, they had all worked for CRA, CRA rulings or or the, you know, the federal government where they learned their tax. So I went and um, I was planning on staying four or five years. And, um, you know, lo and behold, I was married and then we had one child and life was good. And so I ended up staying, you know, and, um, you know, after you do something a while, you get good at it, right? And it gets really comfortable. So I had I didn't want to be a tax lawyer really until I started articling and started doing tax. And even then, I just, you know, as an article student, that's what you want to do. And so um, I sort of fell into it, but, you know, I love it. And 30 years later, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm very comfortable doing it. Um, it's, uh, I love it. It's very challenging. Yeah. And, um, but it wasn't a, it wasn't what I wanted to do or a straight path or anything, but as it turns out, um, you know, I, I, I love it. So somebody's watching out for me, although they weren't watching out for me during Portugal, Germany today. <laughs> That's sure. The last, oh my goodness. I think the last like five guests, maybe something like that. I mean, and, and definitely ones before that kind of all have a, a very similar story. It's really funny. Like, yeah, I wanted to go into this and then I ended up going over here and then I stayed there and I'm like crushing it. And it's like, yeah, that's, it's funny how things kind of work out because you think you know what you want to do or what you like, and then you try something new and it seems to go well, you like it and you just stick with it. And then next thing you know, you're getting, you're having a great time and making a good living. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, you know, even the, the, the kind of work I did, because I was with the, I've only been with Thorstensons now for three and a half years. So before that, it was all with the Department of Justice, right? But I ended up doing this very uh, complex, uh, high profile work uh, dealing with the general anti-avoidance rule and tax avoidance, tax shelters, and so on. And even that work sort of just uh, fell into my lap. So uh, it was about about 10 years into my practice at the Department of Justice, we used to do file assignment every week. Uh, the lawyers used to get together and the director would have a big pile of new files and he would have, you know, say, this is what the issue is, who wants it, who's got capacity, that he'd hand it out. Well, we had a lawyer leave, a very senior lawyer leave, and he had, he had a tax avoidance practice uh, at the Department of Justice, you know, dealing with those kinds of cases. And he left, and so there was this, these few huge boxes at our file assignment meeting. 
And, you know, the director asked, so who wants to take over these files? And there were no hands, of course. You know, you can, uh, you know, you can make the, make the jokes about a government meeting. You know, there'd never be a hand going up. But I put my hand up and said, yeah, this is great. Let me, let me see what this is like. You know, I like this lawyer. I'd worked with him a little bit. And so I ended up doing, um, starting to do this tax avoidance work and this general anti-avoidance rule work. And then that, that progressed. And, um, uh, you know, and uh, so I sort of made a name for myself by doing that work, but it was great work. It was very, um, it was very stressful because it was very, uh, very sort of public, right? And uh, the, the CRA, you know, every case was very important to them and, uh, you know, you didn't want to lose, uh, but, um, but it was great work, but uh, it sort of got my name out there and and so uh, when I, uh, you know, when I decided to, uh, you know, jump ship and try private practice, you know, the, uh, everybody had know, everybody knew me, right? It's not that big of a tax bar, a tax representation bar, but everybody knew me. And so um, I hadn't burned bridges, you know, I was, um, it's an adversarial process, but, uh, you know, there's no need to be um, adversarial with the other council, you know what I mean? You're adversarial in the positions you take and in dealings with the court, but not opposing counsel, you know. I've never, I've never wanted to make someone else's life difficult or, um, and have them make my life difficult. Like the job is stressful enough, right? You know, so, but uh, yeah, highly recommend, highly recommend that uh, people have some knowledge of tax law. Cause as you say, every day it's, it's just, it's just so important and it's just uh, becoming more and more important, right? But uh, yeah, yeah, it's um, it's been a it's been a good career. You know, even the jump to private practice um, was wasn't very well thought out by me. Actually, I came back from Toronto. I just dealt with a case at Court of Appeal in Toronto, um, and um, came back. And you know, over Christmas, things quiet down a little bit. So, uh, you know, I could see my calendar for the beginning of the next year and stuff, and it was going to be the same, really busy. So I just was in my office one day and I just said, I'm just going to make a few phone calls. You know, I'm like 55 at the time, you know, see if there's something out there for me, right? See what, and so I started making calls to, you know, lawyer, private bar lawyers that I had dealt with on the other side, you know, and um yeah, invariably everybody said, "Yeah, yeah, that this is this is great. Yeah, we have lots of work, you know." And um, and so um, I, you know, Thorsonson's is an obvious place to go because uh, that's all we do, right? And uh, it's offices in Vancouver, Toronto. But um, uh, you know, I had lunch, and then uh, they made an offer, and I accepted. And then um, it was like a week later that I thought geez, have I done something about my pension? Like, what the hell have I done? <laughs> my God, I'm crazy over Christmas or something. And, um, but as it turned out, everything was good. And I, I came here and, uh, you know, different people gave me advice and told me what, what they thought it was going to be like or not like and, and stuff. And it's been, it's fantastic. You know, private practice is, private practice is great. It's great as well. I don't have these same kind of files that I had um, uh, with the crown, but um, it's great work. And, you know, there's something to it when, when people, uh, you know, clients call you their lawyer, you know what I mean? They, you hear them talking to somebody else and they say, you know, I'll get my lawyer to call you, you know, and they're talking about you, something to that. And, you know, uh, yeah, so um, it's, 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 a, it's a good feeling. <laughs> Because, yeah, it's an adversarial system where, you, you know, you have defense and prosecution or, you know, crown, whatever, you know, the, the situation may be, or if it's in tort, right, different parties. But it, it you know, the thing that people, because people, you know, media kind of, uh, you know, influences our perception of that, too, because, like, you know, you watch Law and Order and it's like, yeah, you know, you're, you're yelling at you and they're yelling back. Right. You know, it's very um, they really embrace the adversarial uh, concept. Uh, but in, in Canadian courts, it really isn't at all like that. You know, I mean, OK, first of all, they have to embellish things for TV. 
you know, if you're watching like uh, Law and Order or Suits or one of those types of shows. But I mean, I will say that there are some jurisdictions like there was a really famous uh, like if you ever saw like the Casey Anthony case in, in the U.S. or like there's been a few like super high profile criminal cases where it's actually kind of shocking how aggressive the opposing lawyers are with each other. Like it's almost, a, it's got Hollywood uh, undertones. Like it's a little bit surprising, but definitely in, in Canadian courts and uh, UK courts, very respectful. You know, even in, I know in the Canadian courts, you, you refer to opposing counsel, you know, my friend. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just like the etiquette. And then in the UK, uh, I believe it, my learned friend, I, I believe is something like that. I can't remember, bad memory right now. But, uh, you know, so it's a very respectful, um, even though you're technically it's adversarial, there's that level of, you know, we're trying to find the best solution. Okay, yeah, you want to win, I want to win, but you work together too in a way. You're not always pitted against each other. There is that level of uh, neutrality almost. Oh, yeah. You know, I I would say it's... it's, um... Yeah, a bit context dependent. I've only ever worked in the um, you know the civil litigation um, field and the tax litigation field, and so you know a few things um, make it less adversarial. When it's a small bar, you see the same people all the time, and so you know you're not going to last long. You know if you uh, you do something sharp to somebody, you know word gets around, and um, you know you just uh, your life's going to be uh, be far more difficult. But uh, as well as context, I mean, I think it's a, it's a cultural thing. I mean, we're Canadians, you know, and so that doesn't change when you get in the, uh, you know, in the courtroom or dealing with uh, clients or opposing uh, opposing counsel. You know, I think there the subset of people that end up doing litigation. Some people really like doing litigation. You know, there may be a lot of extroverts that do litigation. They like to talk and so on. I don't necessarily consider myself an extrovert. You know, you heard from my history. I just found myself doing this kind of work and, and, and you know, I like it. Um, but, um, but uh, you know, uh, and so maybe the subset of lawyers that do litigation are a bit more uh, extroverted and maybe aggressive, but, but um, no, it's not... Um, uh, you know, you 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 quickly um, you quickly see the rhythm of your courtroom, you know, and you're with the rhythm of your practice, right? Um, tax is very is quite unique because it's um, it's a it's quite a small bar, and um, and you know singularly focused like that. I imagine a criminal law in in Canada, though. I I, I imagine that can border on personal. Some of the uh, submissions that are made can border on personal against opposing counsel, but uh, you know. Well, know. and and to that, uh, I've t- I talked to a few lawyers uh, based out of Vancouver, and they've said that when they've gone to uh, one of them has gone to the Supreme Court of Canada a couple times, I think, and another one said that they I think it might have been Quebec and. Quebec, Ontario, and Saskatchewan, or so, like quite a few, like multiple provinces. And they said, definitely you see that in, in Ontario, apparently it's actually quite aggressive. Like they're, they're very, they really embrace that adversarial role where they're pretty short with each other and they're not all that <laughs> kind. Uh, but certainly here, it does seem there's a lot more respect, you know, in that sense. And the other thing too, judges are really tough on that. You know, stay in your lane, you know, let's, yeah. <laughs> let's keep the system moving, you know, don't be getting, don't be uh, drawing outside the lines, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with you, even in the tax, um, even in the tax litigation area, you know, Toronto, yeah, it, it is more aggressive coming out of Toronto <laughs> as well. Uh, from both sides, the crown that comes out of Toronto and the uh, the private bar out of Toronto. Uh, when I was with the crown, I would have dealings. I would have files with the uh, Toronto Council uh, opposing. And there were, there were, you know, if you were to name the most aggressive council, yeah, probably seven or eight out of the top 10 were Toronto Council, <laughs> you know, so... Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. More, um, 
yeah, I don't know. There's just more competition and that that business, that uh, competitiveness that comes from business as well um, makes its way into the courtroom. Um, you know, some judges, um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, I've been doing this so long, you know, um, I, it, it's hard to speak of, um, of, of judges as a group, you know, I mean, I, I found it very so much, you know, uh, I mean, the, the tax court is about 24 or so. And, um, you know, that's, of course, changed over the years, right? Uh, different than when I started. But, um, uh, you know, as a group, I agree with you, you know, and they're, they're put in a difficult position, put in a difficult position, um, trying to, um, you know, sort out the wheat from the chaff in terms of, um, you know, fact finding what's true, what's not true, what the real story was. And then to, um, to determine the law, you know, to really find the law out there, you figure tax is super detailed. We've got a thousand pages, um, you know, in the, in the act, right? Um, but um, there, there's a lot of room for subjectivity there. So they're, they're put in a, in a tough position, but, um, but it's, um, it, it varies, varies widely, um, you know, if you ask me, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the the range of, I don't know, let's call it good judges to bad judges, you know, it, it, it's a pretty wide range. It's not, it's not a narrow um, little spectrum. No, it's a, it's, it's a wide spectrum. Uh, the, the median is they're, they're good. Yeah. But, um, but it can vary, uh, it can vary uh, quite a bit. You know, my, my sister-in-law, she does, she does, or she used to do criminal law uh, for the federal um public prosecution service. So, you know, drug, uh, drug prosecutions, grow ops and things like that. And, um, you know, it was a classic thing. Uh, you know, there'd be pro crown judges and, um, pro defense judges, right. Just philosophically. And, um, partly, you know, because where they were, um, where they were appointed from, if they were former crown and appointed, uh, whereas if they were former defense and appointed, and then whatever life experience they've had, um, you know, um, and matters are so, uh, uh, money's important, uh, tax is important, money's important, but the criminal law sphere, <laughs> that's, that's definitely another level up. I've never wanted to deal with that. Uh, family law, you know, as much as I didn't know I wanted to do tax, I, um, I pretty well knew I didn't want to do any criminal law or, um, or family law. Although that those were two very big areas and common areas, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't really, um, I didn't really want to deal with uh, with that. Pretty serious business, you know. I mean, you're going to be doing <laughs> some genocide podcasts <laughs> coming up, apparently. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, you don't mind, uh, you don't mind dealing in those um, those very serious issues. But uh, I'll leave those for home life and not <laughs> my certainly my work yeah but you're um you're you're interested in the criminal law are you yeah well, it's funny that you bring that up because it's interesting how like to me i don't you you mentioned the uh the the genocide series and uh there's going to be more information uh about that but for uh yeah for for criminal law you know and we took a fair number of uh family law, like two family law courses and child law, stuff like that. So, you know, pretty familiar with that category of, of law. And I actually, uh, Dr. Vicki Thanapal is one of my professors and she, we recorded a podcast a little while ago. So that's on, on season two for people who want to go listen to that. But it's funny, like how my temperament, I suppose, I have a really tough time. Like you couldn't get me to do family law. I really, I find it very interesting academically, really enjoyed it, always did pretty well with it, but there's no possible way you could get me to do that. But, you know, drugs and murder and, you know, all that <laughs> stuff, eh, it doesn't really bother me too much. But so it's really funny how the, I, I must just be a temperament thing. Because uh, I, I guess it kind of comes down to your your morality and how how you can not separate yourself from, from your morals, but just how that dictates how you compartmentalize certain issues. And certainly for me, uh, I, you know, dealing with a, a divorce and 
you know, one parent's trying to take the kids away from the other and they put the kids against each other. Oh my God. I, oh yeah. I give it to the practitioners. Oh yeah. I, I, I give such credit to the practitioners because you're working. It just seems to me, and I, you know, I've never worked in the area that you're working in an area that's, um, uh, there's almost no winners. You know what I mean? You, um, it, it's just a, a matter of trying to, trying to make the best of a, uh, just an awful, awful situation. You're trying to make the best of it. And so for those people that want to help and I give them full credit, just not me. And a little experience I did have with it was working at the law school um, uh, legal advice clinic out in Surrey one summer. And so um, I guess I can tell this story. I, I, you know, they had a program, the Do Your Own Divorce Program. And that's where, you know, instead of hiring a lawyer, you could get us, uh, you know, to help you with the paperwork and to manage your way through the process. So you didn't have to pay a lot of money. It was a Do Your Own Divorce Program. So um, over the summer, you know, um, every week there would be you know, a young woman that would come in with one or two babies in tow and want a divorce, you know, her husband. And, um, uh, you know, uh, the reason was always the same, you know, they were, um, uh, oh, the guy was, he was great. He was the party. He was the jock. He was the most popular guy in high school. It was fun to be with him. It was great. Uh, but then after high school, he didn't change, you know, he got married and uh, had a baby and he still wanted to be in high school, you know, and live that life. And it just, it just wasn't fun anymore. And so they want to divorce the, uh, they want to divorce the guy. And this, you know, I'm intelligent, attractive women with, you know, one or two babies coming in, you know, every week wanting to do this. This was, uh, this was very difficult, you know, very funny. And we'd have to get a, a picture of the, uh, their spouse for service purposes to serve documents. Invariably, they'd give us a picture of the guy, you know, on the toilet, uh, throwing up or something. You know, you barely can see his face or can't see his face or something like that. And we'd say, yeah, no, this isn't to, to color his character. We did. I don't want the picture to know about the guy. OK, that it's for service purposes. We need to know his face so we can uh, process service and serve him with documents and then they would dig up something, uh, you know, maybe a wedding photo or something. Uh, but um, it was just a terrible situation. It was a terrible situation to continually be exposed to it. You know, uh, I hadn't necessarily been exposed to that kind of thing when I was, you know, growing up. Uh, I was, you know, uh, lucky, lucky enough not to have that kind of thing. But um, uh, yeah, that... Um, you know, that really, uh, not that I had a, an interest in, in family law, anything more than like substantively like you did, you know, an interesting area, issues and so on. But no, to practice it, no, no never, never. That's that's really tough. And his sister-in-law is telling me about that did the, uh, the grow-ups for the public prosecution service. She spent some time doing immigration, deportations. Oh my gosh, there's a serious one too. I mean, um, you know, separating families or not allowing them to be uh, to be together, and you know, for for good reason, you have to have immigration laws and so on, not hold them. But that context to practice every day in that context that would be that would be very uh, very difficult. I think maybe the criminal one may be uh, maybe easier, you know, um, because. Um, whether you're on the prosecution side or the, or the defense side, because, um, uh, you know, the defense side, I mean, so much of criminal law and criminal um, practice is spending time with the charter, right? Evidence and, um, you know, voir dires and um, uh, th that kind of thing. So um, that, that, that's, that's important stuff. And that's really interesting stuff. The constitutional law stuff is really, really interesting. Really enjoyed that in law school. Everybody loved that in law school. It was so exciting. Oaks test and uh, things like that for section one. It was, 
It's just fantastic. I've done a little bit of that um, my time in tax litigation. You know, early on, there was challenges to, to credits for spouses, for instance. Uh, you know, they would only allow a, a tax credit for spouses. Well, what about common law spouses? And what about gay couples? You know, and so there were, there were several challenges made um, that we had to defend against. And that was always... It was always um, you know, very interesting, very interesting cases, putting together the, uh, the, the section one justification for the laws and things like that. So um, yeah, I think you'll find it, uh, find it quite exciting. Yeah. What was the name oh. of the center that you volunteered at? It was the Law Students Legal Advice Program, LSLAP. So students legal advice program, they would run, you know, um, free legal advice clinics, right? Only certain things we could help with, but um, it was, it was, it was great. It's a great thing to be part of. Yeah. In my first second year, I volunteered, uh, so it was called the Surrey Law Center, Surrey, England, not, not Surrey, <laughs> yeah. British Columbia, but Surrey, the nice one, the nice Surrey. Yeah, yeah I think <laughs> so. Yeah, same, same yeah. kind of thing. Like that one, you basically just did like secretarial type stuff, you know, making photocopies and organizing the people coming in. And, and the way that the, the center is now closed, I think it closed in third year. Which is really sad because they, you know it was public funding, uh, funding, and then the funding ended, and then you know this place closes down. But they would have generally there would be like four anywhere from four to six lawyers, and generally very good ones, uh, like very very good ones, top of their field, and they would do their pro bono work out of this center, and yeah. so you would see a number of cases. It was mostly tort and employment. Um, issues and but there would be some family stuff as well and yeah I remember the the I think it was in second year and there was a you know woman who came in and you know black eye and bruised on her you know on, on the side of her face and it's like I think she was coming in for a protection order or you know something you know trying to get away from her husband or boyfriend whoever it was and you know you're you're 20 22 yeah 22 at the time and it's you know it, it's tough to see because it's like you know not only is this poor woman you know marked up from being abused but you know you can see the the hurt and you can see the the shame and and the fear and it's like holy god you know every day of this every day you know oh, I'll leave it to better people than I you know because it's yeah, it, it, it's messy. It's tough to separate that. It really is, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, m m money's important. Money's important, but it's um, it is a it, it is a one or two or a hundred steps down from uh, from dealing with family law in that context and other con other legal context for sure. But um but yeah, the, the uh, you know it's too bad because that I mean that program was a really good program because all this substantive law that you know, you know it's um, there's a, there's a person now there's there's a person and you've got to apply it to to this particular person and it's not an academic exercise, um, you know at at all it's like talking about relationships and learning, reading about relationships, but then actually, uh, you know, asking somebody to marry you or, you know, um, <laughs> putting that to the practical use or with an actual person. So it, I think, uh, I'm not sure if everybody had to do it, um, but um, I ended up doing it in the summer, uh, as I say, and, um, and yeah, there, there were there were some of the professors, some of the staff lawyers that were, uh, you know, that were uh, doling out the legal advice and so on. But um, but um, the only parts of it I remember were the do your own divorce program. You know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't pleasant. Although if you could help them, you know, you could help them. But uh... just from the the practical side, I'm curious uh, as far as the I mean, you need a number of skills to, well, and even to be a lawyer, what does that mean? Are you more of a, uh, you know, the guy doing the research and drafting uh, complaints and arguments and whatnot? Are you the courtroom lawyer where you're 
you know, frequently having to advocate and things like that. So it's a very, as far as the term lawyer, it's extremely broad, but generally speaking, I'm just curious for, for you. So you would have been, cause you have to do an undergrad and then you go into law. So you would have been about 24, 25 going into first year law. It was it yeah, 88. I started, I, um, and so I would have been 25, yeah. 25 or turning 25, yeah. And was it a four-year degree then? No, three years. Three years of law school, one year of articling. And so I graduated in 91 and finished my articles in 92. And so I started and I guess it would have been... Um, no, I, yeah, I started in 88, September 88, and then graduated May of, you know, or June um, in 91. And then did my articles and article and called to the bar in 1992. And so as far as ad, like skills required for advocacy, would, did you learn most of those skills in, during your articling and then after, I guess, just kind of like OJT, like just kind of on the job training? Yeah, you know, you know what it, you know what it is in terms of courtroom and uh, being successful in a courtroom, if you ask me, it's that um, it's, it's confidence. It's confidence, okay? Like I was mentioning earlier how I, I'm not shy about public speaking. If, if, they, if somebody wants me to talk in front of 100,000 people about Robert Carvalho, I can do it. Millions, of, that's great. I got no, because I'm, I'm an expert in that. And so the reason I like, you know, I find, find now I like courtroom work and why, uh, you know, cases, uh, courtroom doesn't um, scare me is by the time I get to the courtroom, I'm so well prepared. I think I'm the smartest person on the planet. If you were to have to go to court unprepared, oh my gosh, yeah, that would be such a bad experience. That would be like torture. But you know, just, just personality wise, right? If you just have a work ethic and a bit of a sense of professionalism and, you know, that, um, that, that fear of that feeling <laughs> of going in unprepared, um, uh, by the time you go to court, you wanna go to court, you know? Because you think you're the smartest person on the planet on this one little topic, on this case, on this day. It's a great feeling. And, you know, that's the, um, so the skills to do that, you know, do you have a, you know, a work ethic, professionalism, and do you have that fear of going in uh, unprepared? You know, the times you would um, go unprepared because, you, you know, you didn't have time, you know, you had too much on your plate and, and so on. And I was lucky enough that although it was busy with the crown, um, I, I, that, that was very rare to me, you know, I was given, I was given enough time to work on my files that by the time I went to court, I wanted to go to court. I couldn't wait to go in there. I lost a lot of cases, <laughs> you know, <laughs> forget all this law and order, never lost or this, forget it, you know, um, but, um, but we, it's, it's a great, great feeling, a great feeling. But you know how you how you learned, picked up the subject matter and um, and the skills as a as a litigator, you know, yeah, I mean the, the the usual way. I didn't have necessarily a mentor, but I worked with one senior lawyer in particular on a few files. Uh, he he's about thirty years older than me, very senior, old style litigator, you know, and um, just his, you know. It, slow and methodical and very Socratic. You know, when we were writing arguments for the, um, like the Federal Court of Appeal or the tax court, we'd literally just be in his office and then we, he would handwrite the argument. So every sentence we would spend, you know, a minute, five minutes, every single sentence of your, of your argument, you, 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 you do that and you talk about it. Wally handwrites it. And then he doesn't like it. So the, the page gets ripped and he starts over again. And re and that it's just a great um, way to work because you really get to know your case, you know, that, um, that thoughtfulness. And he was always one for 
get a draft down and then edit the hell out of it. That is the best way. That is the only way. Get something down, um, no matter how many pages it is, and then edit it, edit it down and, and repetitive. And other than him, you know who taught me the most uh, about practice was I had a vexatious litigant. A certain gentleman, certain taxpayer whose problem started back in the 1980s, just before I started with the Department of Justice. And um, at one point he had eight separate appeals to the Federal Court of Appeal. So through the course of dealing with his files and his motions to have the Prime Minister Chrétien come and answer questions, and subpoenas being issued to the Minister of National Revenue and his motions to have me um, disbarred or removed as Crown Counsel. And, um, you know, I learned so much about procedure, you know, I learned so much about procedure and I was before the prothonotaries and judges so much um, that he, he taught me so much, you know, and gave me such confidence because I had to deal with so many different issues um, coming from, uh, you know, dealing, um, dealing with him. And, um, you know, I, <laughs> he, was, he was phenomenal. He made one little tax mistake in the 80s and then tried continuously to correct it. So, uh, you know, tried to claim fictitious losses and then tried to say he was writing a book and had losses from writing this book. And then we asked for a copy of the book. And what we got was um, the each chapter heading. So we got like 30 pages, but it was one line on each page. Chapter one, this was the name of the chapter. Next page, chapter two, nothing in between. This, this was it. And um, he set up his own court, the International Court of Truth and Arbitration um, in his house. And uh, so we started getting subpoenas to go to this, <laughs> this international court um, at, at his house. And, um, you know, being extra, extra, extra cautious, you know, we seek directions from the federal court to make sure that, uh, yeah, you know, that they sort of know what's going on. And it, it was such a learning process dealing with this vexatious litigant. So aside from having this one very senior litigator that I, I worked with that um, who taught me a lot about how to practice and how to deal with files, it was this vexatious litigant that, um, that taught me the most and gave me the most confidence. Um, you know, and, yeah, partly because, you know, every motion, we'd, we'd win every motion, right? Because it would be so frivolous, right? Um, and, um, and so that gave you a lot of, a, a lot of confidence. And um, up until one point where one judge said, Mr. Carvalho, like, I, I've seen you like six times in the past six months. Like, oh, what, you know, why don't you bring a motion to declare him vexatious in our court? You know, and I'm surprised you haven't done that. I'm directing you to go look into that. And so I got my knuckles wrapped for sort of not um, trying to put an end to what this guy was doing. Um, uh, <laughs> but um, but I, 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 thank, I thank him for all his, um, for all his antics and, um, you know, for teaching me, uh, giving me confidence and, um, and um, even when he put, he opened up a, an umbrella one time during the examination for discovery and put it on the table to obscure my view of him because he was so sick of, uh, he was so sick of me. And, um, and so I even learned then, you know what? What you do is you put things on the record, you know, during the examination for discovery, somebody does something and you just make the comment, you know, I've, I'm putting on the record that the appellant has opened up an umbrella to obscure my view of him, you know? And that's how you deal with things like that, you know, putting things on the record. So I, I learned that, you know? And um, so, 
anyway, it was uh, it was uh, you know strange um, strange mentors, but um, uh, you know again, uh, I, I definitely have that gentleman to thank for uh, for giving me you know confidence uh, you know that you need to do this kind of work. So, all right. So I want to, I want to ask you a little bit about a uh, little bit, we'll get into the little technical side of, of tax here for a little bit, just cause I think it, I think it'd be kind of a fun thing to do. So uh, really quick tangent, really funny. I, I'm not going to say which episode it was cause I, I don't want to uh, <laughs> highlight my embarrassing mistake, but I was listening to it and I pronounced legislation legislation. So three years of law school to, yeah, what a, uh, so if, as soon as I heard that, I'm like, oh my, you bonehead, what are you doing? Yeah. So, anyway, so the legislation that you deal with mostly, uh, at least there's a specific statute that relates to this general anti-avoidance rule. Yeah. So the, you know, the, 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 the idea was that, um, in 1988, they brought this in, this thing called a general anti-avoidance rule. And most jurisdictions, most Western jurisdictions, you know, G20 jurisdictions have some kind of general anti-tax avoidance, anti-avoidance rule. And, you know, what, what used to happen is, um, you know, tax, tax law is very specific, right? There's lots of provisions in the Income Tax Act. But, you know, the, the planners that are out there, like my fellow partners here, they're you know, they're brilliant people, right? And this is what they do. They look at this and they say, okay, these are the rules. Now um, we can get around it this way or that way. And so they design things. And then when the government finds out, then the government makes an announcement and then they'll say, oh, we're going to bring in legislation to combat that. And um, it's going to be retroactive, let's say, to the date that we announce this new legislation. And so this reaction, this action reaction um, thing went on for a long time until the government finally said, you know, um, um, forget about that. Let's have something that's more, um, you know, looking forward. So a general anti-avoidance rule, rather than bringing in specific legislation each time we find one of these things, let's bring in a general anti-avoidance rule. And so, you know, believe it or not, on top of complying with the thousand pages of the Income Tax Act and the millions of words that are in there, you have to also comply with the object, spirit, and purpose of each one of those words and sections of the Act. In other words, if the Act says you can't do X, you may not also be able to do Y you know, if Y is somewhat like X, and even though Y is not specifically mentioned in the legislation, you're not able to do Y as well. So this is, you know, um, this is an extraordinary kind of, um, you know, kind of provision to have. It's not just interpreting the meaning of the particular provisions, like I say. What the court has to do is look at the provision and say, why is it in the act? What, what is it meant to do? Not just what it says, what is it meant to do? And so the planners since 1988 now not only have to look at the words, but they have to do this mind exercise of what did the Minister of Finance have in mind in, um, uh, in bringing in these particular provisions? And we have to make sure we comply with um, you know, with that as well. So, uh, you know, it creates a lot of uncertainty out there and it's meant to create a lot of uncertainty out there, but it is, uh, you know, a legitimate tax policy to have something like a general anti-avoidance rule. And as I say, the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the G20 nations and most OECD nations have something like this, a general anti-avoidance rule so um, you know we're not alone in that respect, but um, it is a it is a difficult uh, you know conceptual thing to, uh, to to understand. I mean, you could never have anything like this in the criminal sphere. You know, there you 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 comply with the you know the meaning of the uh, you know of the words right and things like um, you know 
theft or fraud, you know, those things get defined. It's not left to dictionary definitions out there, common, ordinary grammatical usage even. It's got to be very precise as to what you can and can't do. Tax um, is no longer like that since 1988. So it, it makes it really it makes it really fascinating, you know, and it's created a lot of work for the, you know, the tax um, tax planners and the accountants out there. Um, but um, it's created a lot of you know a lot of uncertainty. Um, but uh, it's it it is um, it is good tax policy though to have something like that as opposed to this action reaction um, system that they used to have so I, I enjoyed doing that work uh, while i was with the crown it was it was it was great work and because you're in the tax avoidance sphere you always thought that you you were sort of on the right side of things but um but you know not not necessarily it was uh uh you know sometimes the uh the, the arguments by the crown are you know a bit a bit, a bit far-fetched, right? Uh, some cases are a little less arguable than uh, than others were, but um, it was fun doing it for the crown. It's fun doing it from uh, from our side here as well, from the private side. Uh, these kinds of cases are great. And the case that you deal with are they primarily uh, corporations or are they individuals? Uh, both, but um, you know, you can imagine most of it. Um, most of it is in the in the corporate um, in the corporate sphere, right? So most of those general anti-avoidance rule cases are, um, are 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 corporate, and you know, make no mistake, it's all um, in the context of of tax avoidance. You know, one test for the rule to apply is that the transactions have to be undertaken primarily for tax purposes. Um, but uh, most of the cases are um, are, uh, are are in the corporate sphere. But um, you know, other ones uh, uh, there's, there's there's a lot out there in the um, in the individuals um, realm as well. It took a long time for any cases to come to court. The government was very very reluctant to bring forward um, cases using the general anti avoidance rule. Because they really wanted to manage the jurisprudence, you know, make sure the uh, the cases that came out were strong cases, strong decisions, favorable to the crown. So it it started out very slow, but but now um, it's it's a very common uh, a very common um, uh, assessing position by the Canada Revenue Agency to use the general anti avoidance rule. But. Uh, and what is that you're involved in that really stands out for kind of like, I guess, like more of like a landmark case for you as far as like a particular point of law that was maybe a bit novel at the time or just what, just kind of more generally, if there's a case that stood out to you for, in that way, in that context? Well, well, yeah, the first the first one of these GAR cases that went to the Court of Appeal uh, something called OSFC Holdings. And it wasn't a case that I was involved in at the trial um, um, level, but um, I, I was involved with this senior litig litigator that I was telling you about. He and I did the, uh, did the matter at the Court of Appeal. And so that was the first case that went to the Court of Appeal. And um, the, the, the main issue and what everybody was curious about was what was gonna be this misuse or abuse tests that was part of this. So for this general anti-avoidance rule to apply, you have, there has to be a, a tax benefit. The taxpayer must have received a tax benefit. There must have been at least one transaction done primarily for tax purposes. And then for it to apply, it must be found that one or more sections of the act have been misused or abused. And what that means is that Although the words of the act, words of that provision aren't enough to catch these particular transactions, the spirit of the law, the, the, the rationale would catch these transactions. So everybody wanted to know what, uh, what the test was going to be from the court of appeal um, as to how do you make out that misuse or abuse. 
And so it was um, uh, Justice Rothstein who um, later went on to be uh, on the Supreme Court of Canada and to decide some of these cases in the Supreme Court of Canada uh, that came out with this idea that it had to be a clear and unambiguous policy of the provisions of the act. So if the Crown said that a particular section was misused or abused, the Crown had to show that there was a clear and unambiguous policy of that, um, of that particular provision and that these transactions frustrated it, you know. So for instance, um, you know, people always think, uh, you know, bright lines are bright lines, right? There's lots of rules in the Income Tax Act that for instance say, if you hold a property for 30 days, there's a certain tax outcome to it. Well, with the general anti-avoidance rule, you couldn't, um, you know, you didn't satisfy just by holding it 30 days, right? You can see you comply with the words, but the idea was why a 30 day, you know, the crown would come along and say, no, the 30 days was meant to, um, uh, you know, was meant to be something more, a demarcation for something that was gonna be transient. And, um, but if you use that for a different purpose, um, there's your frustration, you know, of the actual provision. So, you know, this through uh, bright line tests, um, uh, you know, became uncertain, right? 30 days no longer was 30 days. You know, you had to look at the rationale. Why did the Crown, why did the Minister of Finance bring in the legislation um, a 30 day limit? Like what was that meant to be a proxy for? And um, then you had to comply with that. So it was OSFC Holdings, the first case that went to the Federal Court of Appeal and um, everybody wanted to know what, how you could frustrate or misuse or abuse provisions of the Income Tax Act and what the Crown's burden was. So that was, um, that was, uh, that was, that was a, a great uh, appeal to work on. And um, there was a follow-up appeal that went to the uh, uh, Supreme Court of Canada so OSFC Holdings was a partner of a partnership and a subsequent case dealing with the other partners went up to the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, and um, so that was great to be in, involved in uh, uh, those cases. But um, through the years, there have been, uh, yeah, there have been, uh, there, there, there have been lots of, lots of noteworthy, uh, lots of noteworthy things, lots of fun cases to deal with. Even some of the losses, even some of the wins. I, I had a win at the tax court, and um, you know, um, sometimes a win. Um, it all depends on how the judge, how the trial judge words his decision. Right? He may give you a win, but he may make it so easy to appeal. You know, so in the reasons that he gives, you know, you wish. Oh, I wish. You know, he or she didn't say that, or I wish. You know, she decided on this basis and not that basis. I wish she made this finding also because uh, they, they've left the judgment open to appeal. So I had, I had one case where uh, we won at tax court and everybody was happy, but we, we ended up, you know, settling it, almost virtually conceding it at the court of appeal because it was such an appealable ground uh, that, was, that was given by the, uh, by the trial judge. So um, that was an interesting, interesting one to work on and to, uh, to tell your client, the CRA at the time, uh, about why we should give up on the appeal. <laughs> but Rob, we won. We won at the tax court. Yeah, I know we won, but you have to look at the decision and how we won and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So I don't know. Even though you can win the case at face value, but what were the grounds for that? Or if you lost, you know, works both ways. What were the grounds for that? Because that can actually be overturned or, you know, that you can appeal that and go up the chain. And, and then you also have like obiter comments, which yeah. kind of can help or hinder as well. Like they're, they're, they don't hold a lot of weight, but they're influential in different cases, you know? So it's, yeah, it's quite a, uh, quite a process. Oh yeah, it, it really is a matter of you can win the battle, lose the war, you know? 
you 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 go into you go into the court on on test cases, and um, the court decides it on a, a little bit of an obscure finding of fact that doesn't apply to all the cases that are waiting in the wings. And so you might end up winning on those test cases, but you'll end up losing the war of the uh, the rest of the project files. You know, yeah, that 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 happens. That can happen. And, Trouble is, it's really hard to explain to clients afterwards and, and stuff like that. That you only you don't really have any control on that. You know, you put for, forward arguments, and you certainly want to win. And you know, who who knew the judge would go down to the eighth alternative argument? You know, <laughs> what? Why not just give it to us on our first, our primary, or our secondary? Why, why give it to us on that? out of that other basis but um anyway so i know uh you have somewhere to be so i think it's a, a good spot to wrap it up and thank you very much rob for for appearing today it was great to talk to you it's been quite some time since i've seen you actually it's been yeah a couple of years few years something like that yeah yeah but this is uh, this is great you know and um Jeez, yeah, it's like the uh, like the Supreme Court. The red light goes on after an hour <laughs> or so. 